Office Hours Live is brought to you by Arroya, the ultimate cultivation platform. Unlock the power of crop steering through our state-of-the-art sensors and software. Repeat successful runs and scale faster than ever before. Schedule a demo today at Arroya.io. All right, it's four. It's Thursday, four twenty p.m. Eastern. That means it's time for Office Hours, your for, your source for free cannabis cultivation education. I am Keisha, and I am your co-moderator moderator today. I also can't talk. How are you doing today, Mandy? Hey, Keisha. Oh, we've had a long day, but it's going well. We're here for episode fifty-five. Oh my gosh. Y'all know how we do. We're going live over on YouTube. So if you're logging on over there, make sure you send us your questions and I'll make sure I get those to the team. If you're active on social media, make sure you're also following us on all the platforms. So we're on Instagram, TikTok, YouTube, LinkedIn, and Social Club. But I think we have a special guest with us on the show. So for those formal introductions before our q and I'm going to pass it back to you, Keisha. Fantastic, Mandy. Thank you so much. That's why I'm so tongue-tied. We have a special guest today. But before we get to that, just remind everybody who's on with us live here, if you have a question, feel free to type it in the chat at any time. If your question gets picked, we'll either have you unmute yourself or I can ask for you. Seth and Jason, how's it going, guys? Pretty good. Good day. Yeah. Good to see you. All right. Well, who's in the virtual building today? Got uh, Dylan from Grizzly Farms PDX and uh, really excited to have him here on the show. It's uh, actually, I think, my first time meeting with you, Dylan. So uh, really good to make the acquaintance and we're, we're stoked to hear your story. Appreciate you. Yeah, no, I've seen you from afar. Definitely with some good insight. I've worked with Seth a little mm -hmm. bit more. I don't know what what unlucky card he drew, but he got assigned to us kind of in the beginning. <laughs> I picked up picked up Roya, and it was super super helpful. But yeah, every every time I tune into the show, I always learn a lot. So I'm super grateful to get invited on and be working with all you guys. Right on. Well, yeah. should we just start booting it off? Get the little discussion opened up and uh, kind of roll with it here. Yeah, you want to just dive into some questions, and then Dylan, I'd love to hear your insights and your experience as we go. Does that sound, sound good? Yeah, yeah, whatever you need. Okay, I'm going to pull the first one here from Instagram. This one came from Dave Ray. He wrote in, hey, guys, seeing tip burn in week two, low EC and substrate, two to three, bud drying back from 50% to 20% daily. Any advice? Uh, it sounds like your plants are quite deficient and probably a little bit water stressed if you're drying back too far, depending on what medium you get, you're in and whether we're talking about volumetric water content or saturation. If you're drying back from 50% saturation to 20%, we've probably yeah. got a big problem. Yeah, and the medium, that's immediately what I'm kind of thinking too, is when, when I'm running those, you know, maybe higher EC strategies, you're looking at 3.0, a lot of times I'll get that burn happening from that dry back, you know, not necessarily from the BC you're feeding at, but just letting it get a little bit too hot on that dry back. It sounded like that was substrate EC at two or three, right? At full weather, <laughs> Yeah, I was Probably. just thinking, <laughs> typically by week three, I'm going to see that EC substantially higher than something like two or three in the substrate itself. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think that's kind of one of the routes that Seth was going here is we're probably underfeeding to some degree. That plant is using up more nutrients than uh, is available in the substrate. Um, make sure you're checking your pH. Like that's one mm -hmm. of the easiest ways to know that, hey, we're running out of one of the... Um, supplemental factors, one of the ions that that plant needs. And so, uh, you know, even at that low, maybe your pH might be balanced and they're running out of everything. 
Yeah. And I was going to say, Jason, that's the first thing. What's your pH? Because a lot of times when we are in that low EC range, when the plant's taking up so much uh, fertilizer load, your runoff might be down at like 5.1, 5.2. And at that point, not only do we have low EC in the block, but low nutrient availability overall to a plant Locking that, stuff out. yep. And it's a plant that, you know, first two weeks, it should be growing super vigorously. It should be using a lot of nutrients that plant. I mean, typically that's one of the hardest parts about this generative steer, right? Is uh, traditionally, even outside of cannabis, talking about having a 4EC in the root zone seemed kind of wild for, you know, not so much plant physiology reasons, but uh, cost, you know, in every yep. other part of agriculture, we want to minimize costs. So we're breeding plants to use the minimum amount of fertilizer rather than what they can actually take. So that, that Genetics, I think, play huge into it, too. I think you nailed mm. it. And when I'm troubleshooting things, you know, it's hard sometimes to go off one one thing. I'm seeing tip burn. Um, what I generally try to do is look at multiple plants in a zone. And is it the bigger plant doing it more, the smaller plant? Maybe take a couple runoff readings. Um, and that can help kind of steer you in the right direction. If all the big plants are crushing and happy and all the smaller plants are, you know, not, then that can help kind of indicate other things as well. A lot of people look at one plant and kind of don't get a bigger picture, which you know, I feel like is always helpful when I'm troubleshooting things. Oh, absolutely. You know, you got in the room and you see that variation on the table and you go immediately like, okay, let's go pull, look at all of our variables that we've got, pull any sampling we can and see. Mm. But I, visually, I already know these plants need to be treated differently. So now I can make the choice. Can I treat that plant differently or do we have a, a, a zoning and consistency problem? Yeah. And, you know, one of the things that, uh, you know, Seth always reiterates is you usually can't unburn some leaves. Uh, so take pictures of what that's looking like right now. Um, make some of those improvement um, based on your evaluation in there and, and then take a picture of after, you know, some changes that you see. Those uh, cells that have already gone through some necrotic development are not going to come back to life. Um, so just keep in mind that, you know, take a look at the new growth. Is it uh, undergoing the same type of um, outward expression? That, that needs to be evaluated more. Did you fix the wrong thing or have we cleared through the issue and we know how to, how to avoid any of that in the next run? Uh, I think that's great advice too. A lot of times when I'm helping people, um, you know, medium's really important, but kind of dumbed down. I'm always like things move slower in dirt. Things move a little quicker in cocoa. Things move really quick in rock wool. So when you're diagnosing problems, you know, say it's a soil problem and you go to correct a deficiency and you're looking for that correction to happen the next day, you're probably looking too soon. Um, and so giving it the time to actually do what it needs to do, you know, versus Rockwell, you might, you know, adjust your pH and your EC with a nice flush. And within two or three days, you're going to be seeing the results of that correction. Um, a lot quicker than you would in another medium. So I find a lot of people are chasing their tails. You know, we, we care so much about the plants, whether it's on a small scale or a large scale, it's easy to go in and overcorrect and then not see exactly what that correction was, then overcorrect again the other way um, and and kind of find yourself chasing your tail rather than than finding that correction working. Dylan, you dove right in with that one. Can we, let's go back in time a little bit. Tell us a little bit about your cultivation background, how you got into it. And then I would love to hear about your setup today. What are you working with up there? Oh, yeah. I mean, that's, that's a great segue. I kind of started off, um, you know, very, very typical ocean forest guy, big pots, Fox farm, ocean forest, 
feeding water, feeding teas, you know, single-ended, air-cooled basements. Uh, you know, vividly remember having houses with the windows getting sucked in from the vent fans <laughs> and people being like, why is your floor heated, but your house is really cold? You know, and uh, well, because there's 30 lights downstairs and my windows <laughs> are getting sucked in from the negative pressure. Um, so, you know, it came from that. And thankfully, going back to my, we were talking a little before we came on, my dad getting on my head about screens and using those for pipes and things like that, um, like the sockets with the pipes. Um, it came out after he, he got on my head about smoking, but I found out later on that he actually grew as well. Um, kind of back in the day before there was strain names, you know, you're calling the, the green, the perps, the yellow, you know, single pulling halogen bulbs. And um, he, uh, without going into too much detail, I'm not going to air him out, but got into some trouble for doing stuff probably a little too big and being a hippie dead guy, you know. Um, but uh, yeah, I got blessed to kind of get his knowledge, which was really simple and straightforward. Um, and, and back in the day, you didn't really have much resource to learn how to grow. You know, now I think we have the opposite problem. You have so many people that are doing this and there's so many different ways to do it um, that you can get kind of overwhelmed, you know, with the amount of data if you don't have a solid foundation. Um, but yeah, I, I started off in big pots and dirt, um, had a lot of success keeping it simple, you know, running into mites, running into PM, figuring out how to combat those things. I've always said, you know, a good grower is someone who learns how to overcome problems, not someone who hasn't dealt with them. Um, but transitioned that at the same time, I had a really good friend who was growing in canna and um, cocoa and kind of had that like kind of next level Dutch nutrient program kind of thing going on. And so we got to have rooms together that would have ocean forest with water and teas next to canna and cocoa and kind of see the difference in how those plants eat and dry back and those genetic expressions. Um, and I never really stopped growing. So I kind of just kept it up. You know, there was like a, a year pause there, maybe three or four years ago. Um, but I've always had something going on, whether it's a 10 lighter at the spot or, um, you know, stepped into consulting. Um, I worked at uh, Indoor Garden Depot for about two years. And I think similar, like talking with Seth, you know, I see he has such a vantage where he's talking to a ton of growers. And when you work at a garden store, similarly, you know, it kind of a lot of I used to always say like, old man McGregor grows the best weed the way he does it in his backyard, you know, and you, you see that working at a grow store where people get stuck in their own ways because they came from that place where they learn from one person. They know that that's how they're going to have success and how they're going to do it. Um, and, and working at the grow store kind of opened up my mind to, wow, there's 20 people doing this 20 ways and they're all crushing it in their own way. And that was like the days of supernatural, you know, was the go-to salt thing. And, you know, then you have the ocean forest guys still, or that you got to mix your own TGA super soil guys. And, um, so I saw that kind of wave. And then before I came on here at Grizzly, I was actually working as a commercial accounts manager, um, at Bloom Garden Supply. So similar thing, helping set up some of those bigger grows, helping people tr troubleshoot. A lot of it was like, you don't have enough DU, you know, th things mm -hmm. like that. Um, but seeing, you know, seeing a lot of different ways to do it. So that kind of led to where I'm at today, which is running this farm. Um, and we're all on Rockwell here. Um, we're running the, it's funny, they, they've changed the name, like Grodan's really good at this, but the baby mama blocks or the uniblocks, uh, they're eight by four by four um, open tops. And we're putting fours. We're basically clones to, uh, they call them a GR 6.5, but it's a four 
uh, by four by 2.5. So kind of a shorty block. And we stack those on top of our uniblocks, um, which has been kind of a, a curve, you know, and that was, I had a couple calls with Seth uh, getting into Arroyo and adopting this program. And my crop steering before that was more troll master, you know, which gets you some data points. But when you look at it, like trying to compare, you know, like a Dankum strategy or something like that with a sensor, that's just the numbers are so different. You get an idea of it, but it's not the same. Um, so I stepped in and to be honest, I was very questioning Roya and the program and the, the sensors and, you know, um, Seth said a bunch of stuff that I was just kind of like, wow, that's really not what I'm used to hearing, you know? And, um, <laughs> It's funny because the more cycles we flipped, uh, I was telling you guys earlier, where every 17 days we do a harvest. So there's been a lot of cycles in a short amount of time. Um, more and more things that Seth said in those original conversations has kind of like come to light. And I'm like, oh, that, you know what I mean? Keeping your, your capacity up to this point or, you know, all, all these different things kind of come to play. So it feels like a different world, you know, when I talk about coming from the air-cooled single-ended and now where we're at with data and crop steering and rock wool and uh, just the level of genetics that we work with and the, the level of, that the rooms are at. So it's been, it's been a long ride, but it kind of went pretty quick. It feels like. <laughs> it's pretty wild if you're to sit down and count up how many, uh, how many crops you've grown in your life. Right. You know, we don't have to do it right now, but really like, think about it. You know, if you go back like even 10 years, you're like, wow, that, that is added up. Uh, and I think that's one thing that kind of gets, you know, like Jason will sometimes say like, yeah, there's not a whole lot of research on this or that. One cool thing about this crop is that, you know, in most of these grows, when you've got multiple rooms going, like you said, every 17 days, pulling down, replanting, like you get to see results. Boom, 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 boom. It doesn't take years. The biggest thing that's lacking in the industry right now, or has been up until recently is proper documentation and having access to the tools and then the confidence to be able to actually publish that stuff. You know, we, we went from like say tomatoes over and over with quotation marks, right. To uh, yep. now we can put yep. out some actual numbers relating to a specific plant. And no, I mean, and you, you make me think about like, it's such a typical grow store conversation and sitting behind the counter, you always become kind of that trusted source for like, mm -hmm. what do I do to solve this problem? You know, what, whatever it is, my plants look like this here, check it out. You know, what is this? Um, and it's so funny how confident people have always been in my experience with like, this was the best crop ever. And this is why it turned out that way. And there's so many variables. I mean, like Arroyo tracks a huge amount of them, but there's just so many to track that it's, mm -hmm. it's impossible to keep track of every little detail. Um, and it's really like, it's interesting to me that people are so confident in what's going right and what's going wrong without a lot of that data to actually point at. And Arroyo has ruled, you know, a lot of those things out and you can look at it and be like, well, this room, we hit this point here, or this was room got hot a couple times here, or we ran this room at three degrees higher and this room at three degrees lower. And this is how much that yield was, you know? So there's a lot to, to look at. Whereas, you know, it's been such a world where everyone thinks they know it all without a lot of data to actually show that is, has kind of been my experience. And I've always been like, man, there's a thousand variables, you know, even down to the dry and the cure that can be affecting that particular crop quality. It's not just that particular nutrient line that you switch to that you've only used one time. Oh yeah. The cures. That's, that's a good point, dude. I've talked to quite a few, not a bunch, a bunch of farms, but quite a few. And it's like, man, you guys 
from what I can tell, you should be growing some fire. And they're like, man, we're just not getting the nose we want. Like, well, what's your time from cut to jar? It's like, oh, yep. like 18 days. Like, okay, well, we got to change that, guys. This is a, I know there's not as much literature out there yet, but within this industry that has existed for quite a while now, it, it isn't brand new. And the drying part is, I feel like something people have figured out a long, long time ago on a oh, basic, yeah. you know, artisan level and things yep. like that, you know, that timeline going about a month yeah, I mean, you from smell cut it. to jar. People so, know. so many times back in the day, you'd smell a plant on the vine before you cut it down and you're like, Oh, that's fire. You know, that's just like one of the best things ever. And then three weeks later, you're sitting there like, you know, putting it in your plastic bag, you know, that was jars back in the day were the only way to do it. When you were mm -hmm. in that scale, I remember having just big, huge bunch of them, you know, and being like, God, this is so much more time consuming. Um, but really it making a huge difference. And I've seen a lot of people, you know, mess that stuff up in the cure and in the dry by either rushing and it's delicate because you can trap in that kind of wet, you know, hay kind of green smell by going too quickly and not mm -hmm. burping. Or, you know, like in this season, it's really hard to keep things moist enough, you know, and so you, you were really dry out here, even in Portland where it rains and you'll get to a place where you're, you know, popping totes and wow, one day it was there and the next day you're like, what the hell happened? You know, it's an open bottle of wine kind of concept in my mind. I have a question, Dylan, and I, I think you're raising some really good points around, like, not being attached to the old way of doing things. This is a an industry um, that's really tied to kind of the old school. And I was just curious to know, like, what was it uh, that was going on with you that made you realize, you know what, maybe I do need to go ahead and see what this Arroyo thing is about? Um, well, you know, I got I got blessed to step into the, this farm where they had it installed. So it was kind of like sink or swim. You know, you're going to we're paying a lot for this technology. And the owners here have been amazing. Um, I feel really blessed. I've worked in quite a few different positions um, in management positions in between owners and staff. And a lot of times it feels like you're getting pulled two directions, you know, try to make the company successful, keep your employees happy. But also the owners want to do a million things that are kind of counterintuitive to that. Um, the owners here really gave me a lot of rain, you know, to the point where they're like, if you don't think we need Arroyo, you know what I mean? Then, then tell us, you know, and give us a good point to have that. Um, and again, it was me coming from not having a lot of experience with it and being like, do we really need it? Um, but after running it the way that I have, I really feel like it's been the key to being successful with Rockwell, you know, is I I've done Rockwell before, but I did not have a lot of experience with it. Um, and so being able to have kind of that foundation, it's really helped me, you know, and my goal was always step on this big ship where they're already successful and make the right steps to get us better, but not steer it off the rails, you know? And so that was, that's a challenge. A lot of times you want to take it and do too much too soon. And thankfully I had that foundation of like, don't, don't make a million changes at once. Let's change one thing that we know is a problem at a time. And let's, you know, continue to get better every single cycle. Um, but now that I've done Arroyo, I think, you know, especially with, with Rockwell, it's just like, we're not huge. We're, you know, 120 lights flowering, give or take, and four flower rooms. Um, but at the scale, even at that scale, you know, I talk with people all the time. I'm like, 60 lights, Arroyo is going to pay for itself. You know, it may seem kind of expensive up front, but the data that you're, whether it saves a row for you because it warned you in your pocket, Hey, you know, that that row is getting way too dry. Well, that's money right there. Or whether you're taking it from that 2.5 to three, 3.5 pounds per light and not losing quality, you know, to me that 
those kind of things make Arroyo extremely valuable. Um, and I haven't seen, I mean, there's other platforms that try to do it. Um, but what I like about Arroyo is I compare it sometimes because people have asked me, what do you think about this versus, you know, uh, yada, yada, other brand. Um, I, I kind of feel like it's more like Apple and it's really like, it's silly to say, but it's really pretty and it's really approachable. Um, and especially with the split graphs, you guys are constantly updating things without breaking the system, which happens a lot in these kind of things I've found. You know, you work with a POS system at a dispensary, they give you a hundred updates and one helps and the other 99 set you back to where you're not compliant. Um, so I, I was always nervous stepping into such a data-driven garden to be like, we're relying on this stuff and the cloud. And it's literally given me no problem since I've been here, uh, minus like a day where Comcast was out, you know, or something mm -hmm. like that. And even then I'm sitting there and I lose maybe a half hour window of data and it's not the end of the world. Uh, so, but it's been, it's been key to helping bring our Rockwell stuff up to the next level and really cut through a bunch of the noise in the conversations when we're making decisions with the owners, you know, Hey, this is why we're doing this. Well, you think this is because of that. Let's actually look at this data and make an informed decision. Um, which a lot of times that can be the biggest problem in a, in an organization. It's not the tools, it's not the plants, it's not even the people, but how you're communicating. Um, and I think Arroyo has really helped with our communication, at least over here to really see that data and be able to apply it. Yeah. I don't know yeah. if that was a long winded answer to that, but <laughs> no, man, Seth, Seth and I both completely relate to, to that. I, uh, you know, when, when I started cultivating, I didn't come in with a cannabis background. I came in with an electronics and, and technology background. And what I had to do start printing, printing graphs off manually every day from our, our, uh, automation systems for our HVAC systems, go in yep. circle things. And, uh, you know, it's like, Hey, this doesn't look right. I, don't know if it was right for the plants or not, but it doesn't look right to how this graph should be. And then uh, that's basically how I learned about the plants was, well, this is wrong or this is right. This is, you know, that blip in light was when we went to go spray. All right. Well, next time I know that we can recognize that instantly. Well, if that yep. blips too long or there's other, uh, other indicators that it wasn't a spray, let's go investigate. Was it an elect electrical issue? Was someone in there screwing around with a light panel? What, uh, what needs to go uphill so that we can continuously improve the processes, whether it be what people are doing, what we're doing to the plants or how our equipment is operating. Mm -hmm. Yep. 100. One, and you're not sitting there scratching your head, you know, oh, like it, it could be as simple as a light alarm, you know, and it just like, well, we had a light on for three or four days, you know, because our DE wasn't talking with our little ethernet cable. Mm -hmm. And, you know, even something like, you know, the troll master can help with that kind of stuff, but really seeing, you know, with like Arroyo, what is our light intensity? What were we at, you know, instead of sitting there and I still mark on a calendar, I still am a kind of mm -hmm. note, write notes kind of guy. It just helps me to, to take that data too. Um, but being able to look back and go, well, when, what did we start flower at? And with LEDs, I think it's even more important that ramp up that ramp down with percentages and, and what your PPFD is can make a huge difference. Um, and so having that kind of data, I think is just, it, it's everything, you know, um, and it doesn't take a huge scale for it to pay, pay for itself. You know, I'm not here to sell anything. I just, it, it gives me a peace of mind that is priceless. You know, when I'm sitting there and I'm like, right before I hopped on this call, I'm checking flower rooms. Oh, we got all our stuff watered. And I can scroll through four flower rooms and look and see that the P1s got done and the P2s are starting. And, you know, I don't have to worry about that while I'm on a phone call with you. 
um, which I, I think is huge, you know, cause a lot of times I'd be like, hold on, hold on. Let me go make sure that my <laughs> equipment is doing what it's supposed to be doing. Like you were just saying. Yeah. I don't hear that dosatron clicking. I'll be right back guys. <laughs> you know, it's seized up. <laughs> yep. Yeah, we're, yeah. I was actually at a facility this morning with someone I'm like, what is all that clicking? I'm like, those are good noises. Yeah. <laughs> That's the plants yeah, the being clicking. watered. <laughs> click, 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 clack, got your back. It's yeah, exactly. But I think you touched yeah, on something great, Dylan, which is like with rock wool, you know, we, we hit this point where because you can make changes so fast, there's not a buffering capacity like we see with soil or even, you know, slightly amended cocoa. Um, having the right tools is really key to bringing that consistency. And I think that's what a lot of growers I've talked to that struggle with rock wool see is like, man, they just didn't have visibility on the fact that like, Hey, that one early big dry down in week at uh, day 10 that we accidentally did like, you know, before I was like, man, what happened? And now it's like, Nope, that killed our yield right there. That's why this run yep. was a pound of light. And the last one was 3.8 was because we messed well, and up. You did that early. with us. I remember yep. having that conversation and you, you're able to pull up a graph remotely um, and look and be like, what happened here? You know, yep. or like what was going on with this, uh, which I thought was really, really helpful. Um, and the field capacity thing was kind of new for me, you know, coming from the pot days, you lift up a pot. Oh, it's heavy. Oh, mm -hmm. it dried back, water it, you know, with rock wool, with the plants and a trellis, it's just not the same. You know, you, you're trying to like lift a pot that's completely captured in trellis netting and has a two, you know, three pound plant attached to it. Um, um, it can be really hard to feel in sticking your finger in. It's just not the same. Yeah. Or um, if, even if you're in cocoa trying to get runoff sometimes, you know, later in flower, once you're all in the trellis and you go try to pick up a pot and you move it two inches and nugs fall off. <laughs> you know, it's 100. Just a well, and what's crazy too, is the, you know, you got me thinking on it. It's like looking at data over a week can give you a lot more information than just one data point runoff, you know, instead mm -hmm. of going into damage control mode, like we're talking about, okay, you have a problem. You need to do a runoff test. You need to figure out what the problem is and correct it you're able to kind of look ahead and go, well, my EC is riding up how I'm used to it, riding up over the seven days, right? If you see that start to go up higher than you're used to over seven days, then that's probably a sign that you're, you're overfeeding a little bit, especially when you get used to reading those graphs. And you can see that happening before it becomes a visible like thing in the plant um, versus sitting there and just constantly putting out fires, which mm -hmm. you're gonna do as a grower no matter what, even if you have the right software. Uh, but I think it's, it's a chain, it's a game changer to be able to see that kind of stuff, you know, as it's happening or even before it happens. So, you know, one of the interesting things that I, I hear from, from growers that, and, and when it's usually pas really passionate people that have been growing a long time and they'll say, Hey, you know, I, I don't really want to be sitting on the computer analyzing this stuff, um, rather than being in my grow rooms. Can you just share with us a little bit of experience how maybe Roy actually lets you spend more time with the plants rather than putting out fires? Oh, 100, 100. Um, I mean, ironically, I've spent four hours today doing metric work, um, which is, you know, taking six harvests that are 50 pound to 80 pound batches and sorting them all out by date and then tagging them to get ready for a trance. It's what it is, is like people don't see how much there actually is to a garden, you know, or a facility or how much is going on. So all the free time that you can get is good. Um, but I came in the same way thinking, you know, man, I'm just going to be watching data graphs and like, I'm into pro tools. I'm into graphs. I'm like, I'm the first guy who's like, cool. I'll spend all the time in the office on the graph. <laughs> that's what it takes. Um, but that's just not the case. Um, going back to what I was saying about it being like Apple, 
it's the visibility is there. When I work with metric, it's like you were saying, you're dealing with spreadsheets. You're, they're not intuitive. The way that you package out of a whole package is just not, it, it's done to get the job done, but it's not elegant. It's not pretty. It's not easy sometimes. You know, you click pound instead of ounce on one and all of a sudden you're, you know, not compliant. Um, Arroyo, especially with the split graphs has just been amazing because you're, I'm able to sit there and be like, click flower room one, click flower room two. I mean, it's that fast and check a dryback. You know, I can grab a dryback from the night before and be like, ah, oh, it's within two, 3% of what I'm trying to hit, you know? And there's a, there's a balance there. You, you can, you're, it's never going to be perfect. No run is ever going to be perfect, you know? Um, but I can do my Arroyo checks. And if the owners are watching, hopefully they're not worried about my time management, but I feel like I can do the Arroyo checks fairly quickly, you know, and get that data that I'm looking for. Um, and then be back deleafing with my guys and helping set that, that bar there, um, or cloning or transplanting or one of the other numerous things that has to go on. Um, but I'd say it's like 20% of my time at most when it comes to the actual cultivation side is spent, you know, digesting graphs and, doing that kind of thing and most of it's just like check my drybacks the night before make sure my room temps are on point look at that zoomed out week view and look and see you know what that what that ec is doing see if i'm getting down below like seth really put me on that field capacity and like am i going below 40 at this point am i going below 35 at this point and making sure that doesn't happen so it's literally a, a click a five minute review per room and then clicking the open sprinkler and whatever else I'm using to control that room to where it needs to be. Um, and it's actually, again, it's given me a peace of mind that I don't have to be worried that I'm doing the right or wrong thing all the time. And so I can do things, you know, I'm making an informed decision. I'm not sitting there like, Oh my God, what, like, is this the right move? Is this not the right move? Um, and to me, it's actually, like you said, it's given me more time to actually work with the plants or, you know, do things like this, you know, it's it helped me level up to that point where I can take an hour and a half to, to do something. And I have a, I have a two-part question for you. And then we're going to want to get to some live questions. It's P YouTube is blowing up right now. So good to have you on. It's exciting. I was wondering, what is the size of your facility? Number one. And number two, let's talk about genetics. What's going on in that garden? Uh, um, so Size-wise, I'm terrible about square footage. I should know because it's the bragging point, I guess, right? It's how big. Um, but we have four 30-light uh, flower rooms, give or take. And those four flower rooms have about 300, 350 plants in them on any given day. Um, and then we have a really tight little veg space that's double-tiered where we keep our moms, our clones, and our transplants. Um, and that's kind of how we feed the whole facility. Um, Genetics wise, we have some really cool partnerships. Um, we're working with uh, Khalifa, the dispensary and Wiz Khalifa on some strains like that. Um, we're also working with cookies and lemonade uh, owners actually linking up with them right now, you know, making some moves happen. Um, genetics wise, you know, some of the stuff I'm really excited about the white runs we just pulled down turned out phenomenal. So whenever I'm for me, it's like at this scale too. It's not like we're huge, but you can lose sight of the love for the plant and the product when it just becomes a job and a grind. Um, I'm, I get excited about smoking stuff that we're putting out. And that to me is like a pride that helps me come to work at really early in the morning and stay the extra hours and come in on the weekend. And um, taking taking pride in my stuff really helps to kind of like keep, keep the, you know, on those days where it's hard to wake up. Um, but really excited about the sherb cake. 
and we're bringing on some new super boop crosses. Uh, the homie mobile Jay out in Michigan. I've been working with him for shit, shit time flies. It's almost been like three years, three and a half years. Um, and actually helped get some of those cuts into, you know, this garden before I even, uh, stepped on as the manager, I was working with the owner beforehand. And that was kind of how we built that trust for me to end up, you know, running the facility. Um, but yeah, I think what those guys are doing, Mitten Master and Jay and Bean Fiends, I think have some crazy stuff coming out. So we definitely have our eyes on that. Um, and then, yeah, just a lot of sherb cake right now, man. The sherb cake is just killing it. It's so the nose on it, the color sheet, you know, as much as I want to say, we're all trying to do crazy stuff and bring out the best genetic potential. Like I want stuff that's going to crush it regardless, you know? And so having a genetic that can give you some tolerance and like, Oh, we didn't quite knock that one out of the park, but it's still triple a, um, I think is important, you know, and genetics play into a huge part of it, running these high PPFD, IEC strategies. If you try to run that with an old school strain, it's just not going to work for you. Um, you know, some old school strains can tolerate it better than others, but I've just found it's like, if you're pheno hunting, you know, seed junkie under LEDs using these kind of strategies, it's going to be a lot easier to adopt those kind of strategies and run them and have success. Whereas if you're running a strain that was bred outdoors or under a single ended bulb, you know, it's just not the same kind of game necessarily. But yeah, I feel like strains are just completely, it's funny they're talked about, but not in the sense of cultivation, enough. Mm-hmm. you know, more about like what's selling in the bag, not what's growing and how, you know, you see a lot of pictures and it's like, I, I compared to the pit bull game. Everyone wants to be a pit bull breeder. Everyone wants to do, and you see these dogs in person and they can't move, <laughs> you know? And so easy to make something look really good on Instagram, but like, how does it actually perform in the garden um, is, is huge. Yeah, turn your grow lights off and get a really bright flash in your camera, right? <laughs> oh, 100. Yeah, I mean, and oh. you got to make your stuff look good for the gram too. You know, yeah. it's like, I, I feel it. You know, Jay is a, is a master of making that stuff look phenomenal, but you can tell he's doing the job too, you know? Yeah. So... Well, it's, that's it's an art balance. into itself too, right? Like just capturing that. Um, one thing yeah. I think is rad though, now that we're entering this world of uh, sensing and data aggregation and utilization, like we're talking about genetics. Now, when you run these things, you, you know, at this point in time, um, you're kind of on the cutting edge of actually being able to say, how does this strain grow? You know, back in the day, you'd get like, well, it's a 10 week strain. It's a nine week strain. It's an eight week. Yep. How long does it stretch for? I don't know. 100. Yeah. Well, it stops. Right it stops. Yeah. <laughs> how did you grow it before? Oh, we had it in a 15 gallon pot and grew it, it in the backyard. It needed like, when it needed. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Last time we no, thought this just, was in the backyard. Like, okay, that doesn't tell me anything, dude. Like I got oh, no clue. Oh, it was 12 feet tall. Like, and cool. it was in your yeah. backyard. Cool. Like this is going not in my backyard. So like, let's see what, what's different. And like, now you can actually tell people like, Hey, if you ran a strain, that you like, or you're working with a breeder and saying, Hey, we're trialing this where we can help you is actually giving you real feedback. Like, Hey, we can actually show that this strain really tolerates high, high EC in the root zone. You know, this yep, particular one is, is loving it. And we can also show you even like, Hey, we messed up on this run and we didn't stack it. And actually yep. this one weirdly loved it more cool, you know, but now you have the yeah, data. No, you're not cool. like, was it the EC? Was it the drybacks? What was it that got it all frosty? 
Now you can look well, back with his regulations. You see what genetics run really well together and what mm. don't. You know, I, I've found is like I've made the mistake of putting two strains like, oh, it's pink runs and white runs. Let's put it on the same row. They're both runs, right? And you're just like, you know, one leans way more this way and one leans way more this way. And so you end up overfeeding one and underfeeding the other and drying back too hard on one and just struggling with that the whole time. So Arroyo has really helped me with that, where I'm like, load up the strain in the zone. You know what I mean? Don't try mm. to mix strains up unless you really know that those ones are going to work well together. Um, but like you said, you can see that data almost instantaneously, which is really cool. Um, I, I'd like to see on the genetic side, I'd just like to see more people breeding for quality smoke. You know, we're, we're living in mm. this world where back in the day, that was the cool thing, too, is your experiment wasn't with a lab or what sold on the market. It was, you know, what smoked good and what you liked at the high. Um, and I think we're in a place where, you know, unfortunately, a lot of it is high THC and purple and frosty and yielding <laughs> three pounds light easily. Um, and that doesn't necessarily translate to good quality smoke. Uh, and I see it in a lot of gardens where it feels like the strain catalog is like five gelato crosses. You know what I mean? Or it's like five five cherub cake, you know, just gas purple frost hybrid instead of having, you know, where we had blue city diesel, Jack Herrera, you know, blackberry Kush, you have like five really unique phenos, um, you know, just because of what the market's demanding. And I don't think that's a grower thing as much as a market thing uh, for what people, you know, want to buy. But I would love to see the game moving back towards turps and, you know, having uniqueness in those cultivars too. Uh, probably takes some time people to get there, honestly. You're yeah, speaking gonna... the truth, Dylan. That is straight facts. And that is what we are here for, to help people grow that quality. We're going to get to these live questions. I'm going to, there's a lot of action on YouTube. So Mandy, take it away. And Dylan, please feel free to chime in. Yeah, Dang. yeah. Oh my gosh. We just like cracked open the discussion of genetics. We need to do a whole episode just on that. Um, <laughs> thank you guys for your questions over on YouTube. Thanks for all the shout outs. We have people in Germany shouting out to us. We have Dr. J, uh, Iron Armor. Everyone's giving us the great questions today. I want to go over oh. a quick, yeah, I want to go over a quick poll. Um, so Dylan, um, he likes to listen to music when he trims. And so we thought it'd be a great question to ask, what's your favorite music to listen to when you trim? So the answers were reggae, rap, rock, and country. And reggae beat them all by 55%. So um, yeah, thank you guys for ask, uh, answering that. I'll go ahead and get to y'all's questions. Um, so Iron Armor wrote in, what's the max PPFD to shoot for in flower under HPS? My veg is LED. I'm hitting around 600 PPFD before I move them into flower and bump them up to around 900 PPFD day one of flowering. Should I keep pushing PPFD until leaf temperatures exceed 82, uh, uh, 82 degrees or C, bleaching unhappy plants? Do you have any advice? I think they nailed it right there. I mean, I wouldn't dr- call it. Yeah, I wouldn't call 82 my solid line. You know, sometimes with HPS, you can push those leaf temps up higher to 85, 86. But you're right on. Leaf temp's the way to go. Get a laser thermometer, play with your light height, look at your PPFD, but also get that leaf temp. See what they can take. Because that is our limiting factor, right? If we get too close, like if we're pushing 14, 1500 PPFD with an HPS, that light's probably close enough that we're physically torching the plant with radiant energy. Same reason your yep. arms feel warm, but you don't actually get a melatonin sunburn response. You just... Uh, get irritation under hpss um there you go yeah, they, they sound they sound like they're on it you know that with, yeah. with all the data especially i have two hps rooms and two led rooms 
uh, here, which is cool. You get to see all I'd add is like going back to the genetics, you know, different genetics are going to take a hell of a lot more than others. Um, and you kind of have to find that balance between what is the very top of your canopy look like versus the middle and the lower, mm. because you're gonna sometimes get the tops unless you have perfect canopy management. And even then I'm watching to see like, maybe it's a little overlit in that top, you know, half a foot. But once you get down into the mids and the lows, all of a sudden, you know, everything's chunky and nice and, and turning over good too. So I always call it like a light band and different lights are going to have a different usable light band, you know, um, but just something to think about when you're, when you're trying to find that balance, push it a little hard, you know, one run and then back off a little the next one and kind of see uh, like Seth was saying where that happy balance is. Yeah. I think you nailed it there too, Dylan on certain genetics, like, uh, Side by side, bench by bench in the greenhouse, bench next to bench in the greenhouse. Uh, you brought up Blue City Diesel. We pheno hunted through some seeds like five years ago and got fire. Well, we picked out an interesting one. It grew like a baseball bat. It didn't want to branch very much, but we'd end up going pretty high density. But that Blueberry. stuff, it was great. It was beautiful. Uh, great bud structure, great production. Bench next to it, we'd have this old pineapple cut that we like to run. That stuff, the prime bud was like probably about a foot deep in the canopy. Everything that was, because it would stretch a lot. It was like, you're talking about those old school genetics that just can't take as much. That yep. thing, you know, I went up there with thermometer. I'm like, holy shit, it's like only 84 up on these top colas and they're blowing up and foxtail. Fox tail. <laughs> Pineapple is yeah. crazy foxtail. But then the bench over, you're like, oh, this plant just has a better growth habit. And actually we're getting better PPFD where we're getting good nugs on this plant. So we found like, where you know this one genetic likes it okay for the pineapple we got to treat it way differently apparently you know and then it goes oh. right back to you're like okay well we probably shouldn't ever run those two strains in the same run especially if we're totally. taking cuts at the same time and putting them in the same well, production stream i don't i don't know where i picked up on this from because it was so long ago but it feels like modern day cultivars tend to have more consistency throughout the canopy Whereas that was not necessarily bred for as much back in the day. So back in the day, you know, it, people would be like, yeah, the top canopy looks great, but it doesn't fill out down lower. And that was acceptable. I feel like strains like starting with the original Girl Scout cookies and, and that kind of stuff really started to push that density down lower into the plant and give you a more uniform product throughout that whole light band. Um, whereas, you know, you get into the older school strains and they just never were bred to do that, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we're, we're at a point too, with genetics, right? Where we kind of, it bounces back and forth. You got some, some people that demands high THC, others, it's super high yield. Now we're hitting the point where disease resistance is coming in more now that we actually have people doing genetic research. Thank, and, thank goodness. Yeah. You know, we give it a few years and I think we'll get a kind of a nice intermingling of all those traits we want. It's just, you know, in traditional plant breeding, a lot of times, like I worked in peas for a long time. That's about a six year track, even doing three generational advancements over the winter in the greenhouse. So like, yeah, it's not going to happen tomorrow. You're not going to get like your GMO that finishes in eight weeks and always puts out three and a half pounds tomorrow, but yep. five, 10 years, as long as the market keeps some of those strains in play and those breeders can actually work on them for a while, we're going to have a lot of the versions that we really want as growers. Agreed. It's an intensive project even to do it in a half-assed way. You know, mm -hmm. Plants are amazing because you can grab, you know, a thousand phenos in the first hunt and you can get that breeding done in six months. 
Uh, my parents, my mom, especially has been into horses. And again, talking about dogs on the dog game, you may put 10 grand into some pit bulls and it's going to take three years before you hook them up and put a litter down. And that's only six, seven dogs to work with a horse. It's hundred thousand dollars, you know, to mm-hmm. put down one or two foals and that could take four or five years. So plans relative to that are extremely fast, but being able to do the the work. And I think that's where Arroyo is huge too, is being able to take a thousand cultivars and narrow it down and collect that information and go forward Mm. with the right foot. Um, It's a, it's a huge amount of work and you have to have the background working with those genetics and those strains to know what you're actually looking for. You could give someone the recipe, but if they haven't tasted good food, how it's supposed to be done, then how, how do you, what's the reference for it? You know, if, you, mm-hmm. if you're trying to teach someone even something simple, like making a sourdough bread, you know, something like that, it's three ingredients, but it's completely different how it can come across. It's That's so a great true. example. I'm going to remember that <laughs> sourdough because I've tried making my own sourdough starters a few times and there's no consistency there. <laughs> um, Start it, then seven, it dies. Seven and, years. Yeah. Seven years. And I'm still like, I get lucky sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> Making sourdough is more of an art at this point, though. So I get that. Um, Awesome. (laughs) Iron Armor, thank you for your question. And um, yeah, we're still getting a lot of questions over on YouTube. So I'm going to go over to Dr. J's question. I'm in one gallon cocoa bags, three weeks in flour, um, four 600 HGL, HLG, I'm sorry. My runoff PPM is at 2200 and pH is at 5.8. What ranges of PPM should the runoff be at this point? Do I need to stack EC or is this a good range? So if you're hitting, I mean, that's a little over four EC we're looking at on a PPM 500 scale, of course. Thank so, you for the, thank you for the conversion. I was yeah. like, I got to break out a scale over here. Well, but that's the thing. Like what meter are you using? Is your set for PPM yeah. 500 or 700? Yeah. Yeah. So uh, I would, I would start there, convert it to EC because when we're talking about PPM, that's a little bit. That's something that I personally use to, uh, you know, mix nutrients and dose like parts per million is something that is weighed or measured EC. We're talking about electrical conductivity with decisiemens. So the idea there is we're not looking at, you know, when we talk about PPM coming out of that runoff, we have no way. I mean, if you have a sweet lab, you could go analyze it and see what's inside that runoff. But with your pH and your EC meter, you're not, you know, if you get PPM and pH, that's not actually, you don't know what's in there. So we're just looking at salinity yeah. levels in total. And uh, personally, 2200, you're probably right in the mode. But at the same time, you know, how much runoff are you getting? What's actually happening in the root zone? Because at 2200 runoff, if you are at a little lower in the root zone, but you're feeding a little higher, you know, we could, it's just not a good representation of what's actually going on in the root zone. This is why having the full picture with substrate sensors, knowing your feed EC, and then watching the dynamics of that EC can play a huge part. You know, runoff isn't necessarily one of the easiest things to to get a full picture because you're getting one quick snapshot. Um, You know, obviously, once it stops running off, that root zone is going to be dynamically typically rising in EC. Um, That unless you're you're already on a little bit low EC and and the plants are eating more than uh, or faster, excuse me, then the salts can concentrate in that block. Yeah, I think input numbers are really important in that mm-hmm. equation. What are you putting in? Um, how big is the plant? How, you know, medium size can help, but being able to see that plant and that plant health would help be able to be a, hey, steer it a little more this way or that way. It sounds like you're probably close to within range. Only thing I'd add is doing cocoa runoff tests 
I'm generally looking more at my pH than my EC because my EC has been 6.0 off the charts. You know what I mean? With, with plants and with an input of, you know, 2.8 or 3.0. And as long as your pH is within range, usually you're going to be okay. Um, doesn't always mean it, um, but I've just seen extremely high EC numbers in cocoa runoff. Where plants are still crushing it, you know, it can hold a lot of stuff in there. So, yeah, and that's awesome. something well, I want to comment on real quick, just to interrupt you guys. Sorry, um, when we are look, talking about EC and runoff, do your time series tracking, even if you don't have Arroya, because if you started off low EC and you haven't been able to build, you're not going to be able to go high EC. Your plants aren't adapting to that. But if we can, you know, if we have that time series, I, you know, we can answer that question a lot more solid. Has your runoff been slowly ramping up to that? Or are we seeing like, whoa, suddenly it's 2,200. Now I'm, is it time to react? Like those are the kind of things we got to look at. These values because that these are living the systems. Yeah, over a week. That's why, again, being yep. able to look at that data in real time uh, can be a lot more informative than just one spot test somewhere. Uh, yes, absolutely. I totally agree with that. Our friend Michael dropped a comment here. Michael, you want to unmute yourself? You want me to just read it? Yeah, let me go ahead and read it. He wrote, leach testing helps clarify the gap between feed input and runoff measurements. So a little extra, a little extra clarification there. Appreciate that. Yeah. yeah. And Dr. J came back with a little bit of clarification. Um, 4.2 EC. Um, and then he says, I plan on getting the sensor soon. So yeah, if you guys Ooh. have any uh, other feedback. I think he's going to be stoked to be watching what's going on in the root zone compared to his runoff and actually be able to like make decisions based on real data rather than being like, I it hope. sounds like he's ready. It sounds yeah. like he's ready for it. Yeah. And you're right like there. You're already doing questions. the math. I'm like, people have so much, like already have a lot of info, you know, and that's the kind of people that I think can run with it. You have a healthy plant. Sure. But how do you take it to the next level? Um, rather than just trying to kind of like put out fires all the time. So mm -hmm. yeah, there's yeah, a appreciate the go. input too, Michael. Yeah. Awesome. Um, so yeah, we're going to go on to our next question. Johnson in this one in veg, is it possible for a plant to be chunking through a full EC point in a day? In veg is, I'm guessing that means eating through a full EC point. And, uh, the answer is absolutely yes. A plant pulling down 500 PPM in a day is, I mean, especially if we're starting this big and we're growing to this big, and we've, you know, put on 10 times the amount of biomass that plants needs for nutrition are going to go up rapidly. You know, that's why I always stress to people like you, you want to try to get it up to close to a four EC at your wettest before moving into flower. Cause otherwise, you know, right back to that time series thing, if you can't build it up, you're not going to be able to control that osmotic stress. And if you can't do that, you might as well stay lower EC, lower your lights a little bit and work with the numbers you have. I think that's a great point too. Um, one thing I noticed when implementing strategies, you know, where a lot of people struggle and I'm roasting my plants or this strategy isn't working or 3.0 isn't working. It's like over a clone, you know, if we take a clone out of a dome and it's a healthy clone and you stick it in that four, it's a, it, that initial dryback period is huge. And then every single couple days after you start P1s, which might be four five, six days, depending on what you're transplanting into, every day that need is changing dramatically, especially at that stage, you might have a plant, you know, that needs, that needs P1s, you know, day one, and then P2s, you know, three days later. And the difference between that can be a healthy and a not healthy plant. Whereas if you just have a static strategy, um, that can, you know, actually kind of hurt you sometimes. Yeah. One thing I always like to stress to people is, uh, 
most, you know, agronomic science we have going up to this point, it all happened experimentally. People looked, we obtained all these values, not by like going to a lab and analyzing plant tissue and saying this or that. We have a lot of research that shows how, you know, these nutrients get into the plants and everything that makes it up. So it's like, it's not super complicated at this point and it's not magic, you know, and you shouldn't rule out the fact that you want to, you know, like Jason always says, take pictures, you know, <laughs> take pictures. So you have a visual analysis. You still have to, at the end of the day, interpret what a healthy plant is. We don't have a camera to aim at your plants and tell you that they look like garbage yet. You still got to look at the image <laughs> and interpret it. So though there are some apps out there where you can take a picture of it and it will tell you it's a pot plant. I've seen that ad on Instagram. <laughs> I hope it can get you're that one right. You're growing a strain from 1992 with these <laughs> strategies. Whoa, has the tech really gone that far? That's really cool. You guys are just pulling my leg. Um, awesome. Thank you for the question, John. Uh, we also have a couple more questions, so I'm going to try to get those uh, through those really quick. B-Town wrote in, what do you think of under canopy light instead of lollipopping? Oh, what do you think, sir? Uh, well, you don't have chloroplasts on the bottom of your leaves. <laughs> so like, I mean, you're probably not going to get a whole lot of benefit from doing that versus proper pruning techniques and a better light source potentially, if that's where you're at with it. Inner canopy lighting has been shown to be useful in some places. So instead of it being like down by your pots, it's actually up in your canopy. Um, but that also brings about a whole new list of logistical challenges, right? Now we got these light bars in between our layers of trellis that we have to work around when we're working on the plants. So can it be helpful? Yes, but I think it's kind of an overcomplicated system to deal with something that has a better solution. It's kind of like if you were to ask me about CO2 in a very old school greenhouse that's not sealed up and is venting constantly. Can we put drip tape out there and get it to the plants? Maybe. Is it worth it to do it in the middle of summer when the fans are just on all day? Probably not. You know, and if this is kind of a question that you're asking at your facility, make sure that you're analyzing, are you doing proper crop uh, or canopy management practices, right? Like, you know, what what is the goal here? Do we want to try and reduce our deleafing labor? Well, maybe it's a, a cost uh, option for you. Uh, but you really have to weigh what, uh, what complexity gets introduced, just like Seth was saying. And, and what, what's the goal here? Are we just trying to produce more a buds down lower. Um, wh what are you trying to get to? Yeah. And as we hit, you know, commodity prices across the board, like not everyone's dropping to 500 bucks a pound right now, but like, you know, the industry is marching more towards the value of a product being based, you know, I mean, obviously at your branding and your marketing, but also on its input value or input cost. You know, that's agriculture in general. So how many times are you touching the plant? I think we've talked about that on here before, like a head of lettuce, like, man, you touch it twice and you lost money. Yep. So we're, we're heading down that route where it's, you know, kind of like if you're, what's better to veg your plants an appropriate amount of time and nail your plant density or go back in and super crop. Cause that super cropping for a whole room might cost you two grand per shot when you have a couple people that, you know, if you got five people in a room to accomplish a task in a day, that is not cheap. I tend to be really slow to adopt new technology. I think there's a balance there, you know, especially you guys are, you know, cutting edge with data technology. But I, I think until I see a lot of other people crushing it and not just like, oh, there's some person who's a cool looking person on Instagram crushing it out with a new hype product, you know, 
Um, and I'm not saying that's what the under canopy lighting is. Um, I think it goes back to the strains and how they're bred and how they're, how they're going to fill out regardless as well. Uh, but I tend to see, like, I don't want to bring a strain into my garden unless I see three or four people really knocking it out of the park and not just like Instagram shots, you know, like, what is that actual plant growing? Like, what does it look like? Do I know this person, you know, and I, I would kind of treat a new product like that the same, you know, I, I think maybe two give it two years and we'll see if those products really continue to, you know what I mean? hold their weight. Not saying that they may, they might not work. Some strains might love that. Um, I don't want to put Christmas lights in my canopies. They're kind of sticky. <laughs> yeah. And that's a good point too. Well, just light maintenance down the road, you know, whether or not you break them during the growth cycle, they're going to be absolutely sticky and filthy pretty quickly. And that's just another piece of equipment that you do have to clean at the end of the day. Yeah. Now our trays look clean about, you know, most of the way through the cycle, but it's, there's a reason we scrub trays really good at the end of a cycle too. <laughs> or, you know, your walls, different things that people might be like, really, you have to scrub that? Like touch yeah. it, please just go touch it. <laughs> I was no, just... the glorified janitor thing is true. You know what I mean? It's like, that's at the end of the day, if your facility's clean, your plants are clean, it's cause you're in there cleaning, you know, every day. Uh, I, my crew here is amazing. They, they mop the floor every day on the way out and it just smells clean. You know what I mean? And to me, it's like, even if it doesn't need to be mopped, that's, that's part of like taking pride in what you're doing that translates to all of the, the aspects of the grow. Um, and the grows that I step into that need the most help tend to have boxes and shit piled up in every room and, you know, they're not cleanable. Dust so. on the bulbs. <laughs> Michael posted here, use your light meter to find the bottom threshold for healthy bud growth. Stop cleaning up where the light starts being strong enough. Thank you for that, Michael. There we go. Great I love this it. discussion. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, we have yeah. one more question over there on YouTube. So Diane wrote in, what's the difference between pulsing irrigation events and ones where you just go 30 minutes straight feeding? Oh, so... Drip rate uh, would be probably the first thing that I talk about when we look at that. And I think I've used my sponge analogy probably way too many times, but uh, you know, if we're dripping too fast, uh, we're going to have some irrigation channeling going through there. Really what we want to do is drip no faster than the capillary effect of the media can catch up to homogenize our water content and salt concentration in the substrate. Um, so that being said, you know, if we're on the, the higher uh, flow rate side of things, we definitely want to pulse those for pretty quick shots and give some delay for the capillary effect to catch up with how much water we're adding into the substrate before we hit runoff. Um, you know, vice versa, if you've got a really low flow rate, you can stretch your irrigations out. I probably still wouldn't go to like a 30 minute. Um, you know, usually <clears throat> five or six minutes is as, as long as I would ever go, even with a really slow dripper. Yeah. Typically 30, if you're flowing, you know, directly for that long, we're really looking at some serious channeling, you know, unless you have a extremely low flow rate, like 0.3 gallons, 0.3s. Yeah. With, something like that in, in a bed or something, you know, a massive yeah. pot. Cause you yeah, could yeah. go back to that and a, a good way to visualize it. Honestly, I'll use a similar thing to Jason here on the sponge analogy. Go get half your sponge wet and see how long you got to wait till the water makes it to the other end of the sponge. And that should give you an idea of like what we're kind of dealing with here. And it's, it's all physics, you know, there's nothing, I mean, God, maybe you could put a wedding agent in there, which would be a waste of money to try to make that faster, but that's so just that you what it is. out after the first couple of years. Yeah. And, and it's just the media that like, that's a physical reality we're dealing with. You know, it's kind of like asking if like, Hey, are we ever going to hit 10 pounds of light 
Well, not with the current genetics and technology that we have, because that's too much biomass and too small of a space. We can't, we don't have efficiency or efficient machines to really deal with that level of biomass in that small space where you hit a breakover point where now you're spending so much money to try to maintain the environment that it's not even worth yeah. it to do it anymore. Well, and you, you can see it in practice too. Like if you come from a place where you're hand watering soil or hand watering cocoa and you come in with your, you know, hand watering wand or however you can get it to run down the sides immediately and get runoff out of the side of a pot, especially when it's sucked in and dry. Whereas if you soak it for a couple seconds, let it absorb, give it a second. I mean, we used to do that when you do one pass in the whole garden crawling around on your hands and knees, and then you go and do another pass. You don't just water every single one, um, you know, to try to get that actual absorption going on, uh, which plays a lot of, a lot of parts, uh, and I found even if you're not crop steering, the being able to wet up fully with a P1 gives you a lot of control in that first stage, whether you need to push more runoff at that point or not, you can stack. Um, and then getting to that point where you have P2s gives you that control to hit your dryback targets, um, you know what I mean, for the next day. Um, so that's more of like pulsing over time, but you know, it's definitely, you can see that in action even if you're just hand watering. That's great. Nailing it. We never want to have runoff until we're at field capacity. Mm -hmm. Boom. Short and sweet. Love that. Um, thank you, Diane, for your question. And thanks to everyone over on YouTube. Oh my gosh, we got so many shout outs. I forgot you guys. There's so many shout outs. Um, these Arroyo cats are the real deal. Um, zero bro knowledge. Oh, we love hearing that. Um, Dr. J said, I've watched all the office hours. Oh, wow. Yeah, me too. Um, many times over. Um, so yeah, I think that that is all the questions we can get to on YouTube. So I'm going to pass it back to you, Keisha. Amazing. Thank you, Mandy. Thank you, YouTube. Dylan, thank you so much for coming on the show. We like to ask growers before we sign off, just any words of advice? This industry has been through a lot. So just something you want to, to tell the folks that are out there and, and uh, want to hear what you have to say. Yeah, stay, stay down until you come up. Uh, and, if you're, and if you're passionate about this, you know, then, then the hard parts won't be as hard. Um, I don't think I could do this if I didn't really have a passion for the plants and a love for it. Um, a lot of people I see get in and it's just like, they think it's going to be growing plants. It's all fun. And it's like, it's hard work, you know? And it's it, one thing that stood out to me is like fail faster, you know, it's like, you're going to learn from your losses. You're going to learn from those lessons. And so don't be, don't be set back. Don't be, if you mess up somewhere, if you don't, like if you're uncomfortable, that's where you're growing the most. Um, so don't shy away from those kind of things. You know what I mean? It doesn't mean burn your whole garden down by spraying it, at, you know, too high of a spray dilution, but just don't, don't feel like when you're failing that you're actually failing, it's an opportunity to learn. Um, so yeah, stay down until you come up and, and keep the passion for the plants alive. And I think there's a space for everyone. If, if you really are down to put in the work, you know, and work with other really good people like all of you guys. You know, it's been a, it's been a pleasure and I've learned a lot on this platform and, and talking with Seth and, and being able to cut through that knowledge. So I appreciate you guys. as well. We appreciate you, Dylan. Thank you for just sharing your experience and your knowledge. We learn from you. So um, it's just really cool to have you on. You may need to come back again. I'll just say that. Um, so thank you again for being on the show. Seth and Jason, once again, thank you for dropping the knowledge. Mandy, producer Chris, couldn't do this without y'all. Thank you so much. All right. Well, thank you for everybody uh, for joining us today on Array Office Hours. We do this every Thursday. And the best way to get answers is from the, from the experts is to join us live to learn more about Array 
Arroyo. Clicking the link in the chat will get you a demo with one of our experts that tell you all about how it can be used to improve your cultivation production operation. And then as always, let us know if there's a topic you'd like covered on a future Office Hours session. Post questions anytime via the Arroyo app. Feel free to drop them in the chat. Send us an email to support.arroyo at metergroup.com. Send us a DM over Instagram, social club, LinkedIn. We are on all the socials. Um, we record every session. We'll email everyone in attendance a link to today's discussion. It'll also be on the Arroyo YouTube channel. Like, subscribe, and, sh and share while you're there. And if you find these conversations helpful, please do spread the word. Thanks, everybody. See you next time. Thanks, guys. Yeah. Thanks for coming on, Dylan. Really appreciate it. Yeah. Office Hours Live is brought to you by Arroyo, the ultimate cultivation platform. Unlock the power of crop steering through our state-of-the-art sensors and software. Repeat successful runs and scale faster than ever before. Schedule a demo today at arroyo.io.